It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts, brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Getting hitched? Cartmacross Credit Union likes to say I do when financing your wedding loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The Renault Selection used car event is now on. If you want to save thousands, check out this month's offers, including low APR finance, two years warranty and roadside assistance. Terms and conditions apply. You're very welcome to Thursday afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. By God, it's cold out there, isn't it? What weather we're having. Four seasons in a day today for sure. And staying cold over the next few days. But I think a little lift into the weekend, which ain't so bad. Anyway, that what do you expect for April? April showers and changeable weather. That's the way it always is. This afternoon on the show, we have lots of interesting guests for you to meet today. If you have somebody sitting the Leaving Cert exam, you'll be very interested in what Joe McCormick has to say with us after three on the show. Another inspiring story on this week highlighting successful transplants and it's Organ Donation Awareness Week as well. Sinead Faulkner joining us. Youth crime and juveniles in crime and causing bedlam. You know about it yourselves in many places in the northeast. We have a very interesting man who knows all about this and is going to suggest some remedies to us. But first up, I'm sure there's many out there this afternoon listening to us on late lunch in a bungalow. And bungalows that came about because of a defining book called Bungalow Bliss, first published way back in 1971 and written by the late Jack Fitzsimons from Kells. Hailed as a godsend by so many, cursed and parodied as Bungalow Blitz by others, the original was reprinted on at least ten occasions subsequently. And now Jack Fitzsimons' son, Kenneth, has published Bungalow Bliss Biased, posthumously on behalf of his dad and Kenneth is with me on the line afternoon Kenneth hi Jerry how are you I'm very good thank you so much for taking our call you know I'm smiling here because I remember I, I, I did this mad year at third level a building construction and your dad's book was one of the tenants of the course I remember it well that's very interesting yeah I, I mean it had been used as a manual in different courses Jerry and um in fact, it was referred to as the Layman's Building Bible as well. So it provided, obviously, a lot, in addition to house plans, it provided a lot of general building information. And I think that people found that useful. Um, and obviously, it was, it was a useful educational tool. It certainly was. Did your dad wish this? Was this his wish that you're fulfilling, that you would bring out this follow-on? Yeah, I mean, I... I 
So the story of this book, which is Bungalow Bliss Bias, in the last years of his life, um, Jack Fitzsimons had suffered with cancer and later pulmonary fibrosis, and he was in his 80s and mostly confined to a wheelchair. But he continued to work and to write, and at that time he, he worked on this book really up until his death uh, in 2014. So before he died, he, he gave me the manuscript and I promised him that I'd see it published. And it's really the story of Bungalow Bliss. So a number of people had approached him looking for information about the history of Bungalow Bliss um, over those years. And he thought the best thing to do would be to, to put it down in book form and to make it available to, to anyone who was interested in the subject. And a lot would be interested because, I, I said it at the beginning, there are so many bungalows that your dad's imprimatur is on. In this original book, what were, there were 20 different designs? There were 20 designs in the first edition and later editions then there were, there were more. Um, but yeah, 20, 20 bungalows basically in the first edition in 1971 and you could the, the idea really with the book was that you would buy Bungalow Bliss you could choose a design from the book and buy the plans from Jack Fitzsimons Architectural Practice in Kells um, I suppose the reason really for the book's success Jack felt was that there was a dearth of help available to people in rural Ireland who wanted to build new houses so the decade really preceding Bungalow Bliss, uh, the 60s, there were a lot of interesting things happening in society in Ireland generally. Um, you know, free education had been introduced, RTE, the TV had, had come come on board, and then in 73, of course, Ireland joined the EEC. So it was a time of very positive social change. Mm. And people in rural Ireland, you know, they were they sought and they were encouraged to seek a better standard of living and a big part of that was improved housing. Um, but Jack felt that at that time that they, they, they sort of didn't know where to turn for help and there was there was a real demand for this book. There was, and it, it was driven by what you say there. Was it also driven by your dad? Because he was born in one of these old-style cottages. There was an awful lot of them in Ireland in the 40s, 50s, into 60s, and they weren't great, to be honest with you. Did that drive him as well, his, his, his upbringing? Definitely, Jerry. That was a big part of it, because he'd seen firsthand, really, the, the deplorable conditions that were widespread in rural Ireland. Um the early years of his life he spent in a small uh, thatched cottage with a big crack in the wall. Um, so there was kind of widespread, you know, damp, cold houses. Um, and really bungalow bliss enabled people to transition from those kind of houses in a lot of cases to modern, bright bungalows. Mm. And it was a kind of an escape, I, I guess, from the domestic drudgery that was associated with those old houses and you know in a way it was, a, it was an emancipation from that and I think that you know Bungalow Bliss one part of its legacy is that it contributed to a major improvement in living standards in Ireland and that had a, had a positive social benefit I think for, for people and for the country at large.
Absolutely, and he, he unashamedly supported this right through his life and is continuing from the other side through you now and, and this new book as well to say that, look, at this had to happen in a way. The critics say, and I did mention the word, word blitz because that's the way they'll put it down in a way. They'll say bungalow blitz. It's shocking. It's desperate on the landscape. It's a blight on it or whatever. But what other option had people? You know, they they may have had land uh, in in their own home area and they needed housing. What what else were they to do, I wonder? I think that's a good point and a good question. And and in fact, they didn't know where else to turn um, because help wasn't readily available. So, yeah, the book has become a focal point for a lot of criticism, really, that I think reflects wider, you know, social and and economic and, and, and planning matters. But um, I think that people really were anxious for change and for improvement. And this was really an opportunity for them to do that. Um, Jack Fitzsimons, as I said, he, he, he felt that there, there wasn't much alternative for people in a lot of cases. So this was really their, their, their one opportunity to, to get a modern, decent house. Yeah, and and I, and I can see that point as well. And I understand uh, the people who are pro, you know, uh, having uh, groups of houses together, sharing services, things like that. But it's not always practical in a rural landscape or a, a, a sparsely populated landscape at times as well. Did it ever come that you think through his life, that criticism? And in a way, is this book trying to, you know, come back at that? I guess he felt that a lot of the criticism was unfair, um, particularly in that it didn't make, uh, a lot of the critics didn't make much concession to the time or to the context um, from which Bungalow Bliss really evolved. Um, The book, more than anything, this book tells the story of Bungalow Bliss and, and puts it in context. And in doing so, Jack hoped that that would helped to balance, I suppose, some of that criticism. Um, He felt that any impartial evaluation of the book certainly wouldn't be totally negative. And in fact, there were many positives that came from it. Um, So I think, you know, there was a lot of different criticism and he he does address some of it. And and I think he's certainly entitled to do that. And, you know, I hope it's part of constructive debate on, on housing in Ireland. He was, uh, besides this book, a, a real versatile and talented man, wasn't he? He, he? Political life, he entered as well as a senator and he had strong views on a number of issues, but he was a real campaigner for the ordinary woman and man, wasn't he? He was, Jerry. I think he was a very progressive man, both in, in terms of his architectural work and, and providing access to housing, but also in his political career. And he was somebody who was quite principled and, and who always did what he believed was, was right, you know, whatever the, the political cost might be, because, you know, he did he did want to really, I think, a big motivation from was helping people. Mm. And um, I certainly always, always saw him doing that in any way he could. Now, the book, the new book, widely available on release at the minute. Where can it be got? Yeah, so the you can buy the book... Um, Best place to go is, is calspublishing.ie. Um, you can buy it on Amazon, um, paperback and ebook, and um, in some of the shops. And, and I hope it'll be more widely available shortly. It's, it's, it's just been launched. Yeah, it's, it's only out, and that's why we're chatting to you today. And such a big local connection for us as well here on LMFM Radio. Um, 
I was just thinking, you probably can't travel too many miles anywhere in Ireland, but you'd see the thumbprint or the imprimatur of your dad's book, Bungalow Bliss, looking at you there. There are so many houses built based on this book. Yeah, yeah, they're they're certainly um, very widespread. Um, I suppose not all of the the one-off houses in the countryside are are bungalow bliss houses, but there are very many of them which, you know, I guess reflects their their popularity and um, really the valuable service that was provided to people who wanted to build a house. And, you know, it it really reflects... um, the success of the book, I guess, across across many years, and I think that you know Jack wanted to record his admiration for for all the people who built those bungalows. You know, many of them struggling hard to do it, but um, yeah. who provided really a better standard of life for for themselves and their families in, in doing so. Yeah, we have a, a message in on WhatsApp from a listener saying, my God, Jerry, you've just struck a bell with me. Uh, I built my house from the book in 1994. Uh, would you tell Kenneth? And we absolutely love it. <laughs> there you go. Well, I knew. I, I hear that. Yeah, and I'm sure there are many more. And, and I'm, I'm going to throw that out in a moment to listeners uh, about the bungalow bliss and, and the building of their homes as well. He, he would have been proud just before we finish that it was... Was it at least ten times it was reprinted, wasn't it? it yeah, it was more than that. There more, yeah. Separate editions and multiple reprints of many of those, so it, it, it ran into a lot of reprints. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's funny, you know. I, I do. I often meet so many people who tell me, "Oh, yeah, I, I grew up in a bungalow bliss house." So it's. Um, of course, I always like to, to hear that and to meet people who grew up in them and about them. Yeah, sure. Jack Fitzsimons, his legacy lives on and on and on and will do in this new book of yours as well, Bungalow Bliss Bias. Congratulations on carrying out your dad's wishes. I'm sure he's smiling wherever he is now, thinking he did it for me. And there they are talking about me on the radio today. I wish you well, Kenneth. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks very much, Sharon. Not at all. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Kenneth Fitzsimons there, son of Jack Fitzsimons from Kells. I'm sure many people know the man. What a great man he was. And that book is a seminal work, That that is for sure. Are you living in a bungalow bliss house? Do you know? We've had a listener on already to say they built theirs in 1994. Was your house a bungalow bliss house? Do you remember getting the book or building from the book? If you do, we'd love to hear from you this afternoon. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. Or you can also uh, call in on 1850-715-958 or talk to us across our social media platforms as well. Louise, are you surprised? We were talking about... When we were talking to... Um, uh, about the food earlier in the week, wasn't it? When we were talking about yeah, diet... Yeah, we had and Werner. Food, we had Werner Wheelock on us, is right. And I just see today, it's interesting. Uh, shows you were on the mark. One in five deaths worldwide linked to an unhealthy diet. Does that surprise us? I don't think so, does it? I thought it might even be more. Yeah, what you eat is what you are. It does uh, really back up that. And again, what Werner was talking about, sugar, salt, processed foods... 
out the door. That's it. It's a, a study in the Lancet uh, Medical Journal that's just been published. 195 countries and uh, Ireland ranked 24th in the world. 24th out of 195 in terms of a country that's good. You were saying yesterday we eat an awful lot of vegetables in this country to me, weren't you? Yeah, I was surprised at that. We were that You, you said you weren't surprised because we grow a lot. Yeah. I said I was surprised. I thought France had a healthier diet than, than us. Mm. It seems we do eat a lot of veg. And only right that we do and eat them seasonally. That's the thing to do also. I'm sure some people would say... Lidl and Aldi have a bit to do with that at 49 cent. How many cent is in, in those places for vegetables? I don't know. 49 and 79 and that. <laughs> there you go. But when you break down the diet there, when you're just mentioning about what you are, like when you, you think you're eating healthy, but when you break down a sandwich, mm. how much of that is processed? Yeah, I know. And you have to look at the sugar and the salt and the mm. bread and the roll and the wrap and everything like that. I have a bit to do yet. We have. <laughs> <laughs> Good bit to do. <laughs> sure, sure. We're always walking on it as we go on. But none of us, the other thing, you're not going to live forever, that's for sure. Uh, we know that that is a cert in this life of ours. First break on late lunch of the afternoon this Thursday. And afterwards, I hope to uh, grab hold of a Canadian, a famous Canadian uh, international travel blogger who's in the northeast at the moment. Thank you indeed for your comments. I built my house, Jerry, from Bungalow Bliss in 1972 and I'm still living in it. Great to hear from you. Liam's been on to say a bungalow is a godsend when you reach a certain age. No stairs. So many people have difficulty with stairs as the years advance. You're so right there, Liam. In terms of eating too much goodies, Jerry, yourself and Louise talking about it a moment ago, little pickers have bigger knickers, says Patricia. God, I thought it would be the reverse of that. Little pickers would have little knickers. But Patricia says, little pickers have bigger knickers. I'm going to have to try and figure that one out, Patricia. Maybe you'll come back to me on that. I like it anyway. Nice little rhyme there, isn't there? My next guest on the show today is a school teacher who's turned world travel aficionado. She spent the last five years following her curiosity. Listen to this. Exploring 43 countries across six continents. And let me tell you, she was in the wee county, the county of Loud, the last couple of days. And she's on the line with me now. How did she find it? Ashlyn George, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you today? I am very good. By God, that is a bubbly welcome, I have to say. It must be the oysters and the pulling pints of Guinness in North Loud, is it? That's exactly what it is. It's the amazing week I've had here in Ireland. It's been absolutely wonderful. Now, what about Carlingford and North Loud and these oysters? Did I see you with the wellies on? Were you out picking them yourself? (laughs) I wasn't picking them myself, but I was learning all about oyster farming. I got a little muddy, but that's part of the fun, right? Yes, and that was with the lessers there in Carlingford oysters. Did you taste an oyster, Ashlyn? Of course I did. You can't go there and not sample some. So they gave me a couple to try and they were so good, so fresh. It was wonderful. Down the hatch, no problem, yes? Yeah, no problem at all. They were a little bit salty, but they finished off sweet, so it was really nice. They are indeed. Now, I saw you were in Fitzpatrick's. Did they show you how to deal with a pint of Guinness, yeah? Oh, did they ever? They put me right behind the bar and they taught me exactly how to pull a pint of Guinness. you got to get that perfect 45-degree angle. It's got to be nice and chilled. 
and then you have to wait 90 seconds for it to settle. I was a little bit impatient, though, and I, I reached for it before the full 90 seconds were up. But, you know, they told me just wait a little bit longer. Uh, it's hard to wait when it's Guinness. It's good stuff, right? Oh, but you have to wait on the waiting, the pulling, the leaving, the resting. You're taking your time. That's the key to it. They're teaching you well, I have to say. Now, you were in North Louth and then you travelled down to the south of the county as well. What were you doing with the students in Greenhill School yesterday in Drogheda? Yeah, so that was actually a really awesome opportunity to meet with some local young women who are kind of entrepreneurs and in tech and, and they're building a tourism app to help tourists who come into the town to just discover and explore a little bit better because they believe there's so much to see and do and they want to share that with people. So there's these three young women who are learning how to do it all themselves, everything from coding the app to the marketing. It was really inspiring to sit down and chat with them and see how it was going and how they were doing with all of it. So this, uh, these are young women who are really progressive, thinking about uh, promoting their, their town and their area for tourism. Absolutely. And it's been incredible to hear the support that they've received from the community, too, because that's just as important. You know, these, these young women have this brilliant idea, and then they're reaching out to people that, you know, help teach them, help them learn what they need to learn to, to put this tourism app together. And they're hoping to have it launched out by August. And so I hope that they manage to do it. I'll be keeping an eye on their progress while I'm back in Canada. Terrific. Now, the Boyne Valley, as you know, is historical. Uh, stretches out from Louth into County Meath as well. And we're very familiar here on Late Lunch with the flavours of the Boyne Valley, the produce that are produced here in counties Louth and Meath. And you were the recipient of a wide range of the lovely goodies. Oh, my goodness, was I ever. And I just have to say, I really, really appreciate you know, the local flavors, I grew up on a grain farm in Canada, and you really understand how much, you know, passion and care people put into producing goods. And so it was amazing to receive this hamper with a variety of different cheeses. There was beer, there was cider, there was sea salt. There's so many things in this hamper, and it's just a really great way to sample everything the Boyne Valley has to offer. Are you going to bring it back to Canada with you? Oh, absolutely. I've been sampling some of it here, so, you know, it's been going down quickly. The cider has been really amazing, but, uh, yeah, I'll be packing my suitcase full of everything for sure. What do you make of Ireland? You've been in Ireland, but in the northeast with us here the last few days. As somebody who has a lot of experience, six continents, 43 countries, how do we rate? Tell me honestly. So I have to say, I'm still here. I haven't left yet, but I'm already trying to figure out how I can come back. Because it's just been wonderful, and I've been blown away by how much there is to see and do and the history here and the variety of things to see and do. So it's not just it's not just history. It's not just adventure activities. It's the people. It's the culture. It's the flavors. There's just so much. It's, it's almost overwhelming to have to sit down and figure out, okay, what do I want to do today? There's 20 things that I could do. How am I ever going to pick? So, and everybody, I think the biggest thing is the people. Everybody has been... So incredibly friendly. They'll stop to chat with you. They, you know, they're curious. They'll ask questions. They'll share information with me because that's how I like to learn about a place too. Is speaking with the locals and asking them, "Hey, where should I go? Where's where are the hidden gems?" It's great to hear that because sometimes when you're in the place yourself, you live here, you don't get that understanding. You know what I mean, Ashlyn? We don't appreciate what you've just said to me. That's exactly it. And and even for me with Canada, I went away, went traveling, and then came home and gained that realization of just how amazing Canada and Saskatchewan is. So, yeah, you see it with a different light when you're able to, you know, tour around and speak with people. 
tell me this from a woman that's been to six continents and all these countries over the last five years. And I, I know, I know, you don't have to tell me anyway. Loud me, the northeast of Ireland is your favourite. You're trying to get back there as soon as possible. But where else, if you were to pick one other place that you'd visited and you'd say to my listeners today, I'd go there if I were you. It's sensational. Anywhere in the world? Yes. Um, you know what? I always say Madagascar is pretty amazing. It's off the beaten track. It may not be the easiest to get around, but it's a really beautiful island off the east coast of Africa to go visit. It's just wonderful. Lots of wildlife, amazing national parks. It's pretty incredible. You've also, in your travels encountered, you're a single woman traveling the world. You've met mm-hmm. many gentlemen in all these countries. You mentioned Madagascar there. What about the Irish boys? How are they doing? How are we doing? They're quite charming. <laughs> and I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> oh, God. I think I might be onto something here. I'll let you off the hook. I'm not going to pursue that line of questioning. I'll leave you be with that. But watch this space. Can I say that? Sorry, what was that? Can I say watch this space? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. And uh, just finally, Ashling, before we finish up, thank you for taking our call. I really appreciate it. And uh, I, I can see how you're enjoying and how you'd enjoy anywhere you go. What took you here? Um, well, I actually met Shane Renan from Loth Adventures. And we met actually through Instagram. And we're both in the adventure tourism industry. And we just connected um, probably a year or so ago, and we just started chatting and realized we had a lot in common. And it's really all thanks to him that I'm standing here in Ireland today. He did all the work to organize getting me over here. We reached out to Tourism Ireland to get their support. And Toyota, we've been cruising around in an amazing hybrid Toyota around um, around Ireland, which has been fantastic. But he has really done all the work to get all the tour operators on board with helping me see this amazing country and then sharing it with everybody. Well done to him. Ashling, Ashlyn, enjoy your uh, days that you've left with us in, in Ireland and please do come back and come back to the northeast. Well, thank you so much and thanks for having me on air. Not at all. You're so welcome. Take care of yourself. That's <laughs> Ashlyn George there, school teacher, now a renowned world travel aficionado and she blogs and writes about it all the time. Five years going round the world, 43 countries, six continents and she absolutely loves Loud and Me. Trim GA Lip Sync Fundraiser launch night is on in the Trim Clubhouse this very evening from 7 to 9. Teams will be introduced on the night, that's tonight, and the main event is on Easter Sunday the 21st of April. Rehearsals are going so well and it's going to be a great event and we wish them all well with that. So big night in Trim GAA this very evening. Now, in the North East recently, there have been a number of serious incidents involving juvenile gangs, attacks on other youngsters, damage to property, intimidation, etc, etc. Why is this happening? How do juveniles go astray? What can be done to prevent others becoming involved? And can those involved now be re rehabilitated and what should be done with known repeat offenders so many questions hope to get a few answers in the next while i'm joined by a man who specializes in youth crime he's adjunct professor in youth justice at the university of limerick professor sean redmond sean good afternoon thanks for taking my call i want to ask you this for a starter are all children vulnerable to becoming involved or is it determined by their economic family circumstances well, I'd say that um, the, the minority of children get involved in crime. Um, we know that from the Garda data uh, across the country. And um, 
of the kids who get in trouble with crime, the good news is, Jerry, that uh, the vast majority simply grow out of it. So a lot of the kind of crime that most kids get involved with um, relates to kind of public order crime, yeah. alcohol misuse, um, minor shop theft. Now, none of these are minor offences for the people on the receiving end, so I don't want to diminish them in any way. But um, I'm sure that your kind of listeners would know um, that lots of young, often mainly males, uh, do something kind of um, stupid or mad in their kind of youth years um, that they kind of grow out of, you know, they take on kind of uh, adult responsibilities um, and they simply kind of grow out of crime. So the the good news is that the evidence really supports uh, the fact that um, with most kids we should take a light approach. And I'm guessing there's thousands of adults uh, out there who, you know, had they not been diverted from the criminal justice system uh, would be carrying convictions around. And these are people who are taxpayers now and, you know, uh, living normal lives. And that's good. That's good to put that in context. That it is most. Uh, it happens to don't continue down this road. They're out of it, as you say, with time and maturing as well. And it is a small number. But of the small number, just coming back to that again, is it dictated by economic, uh, socio-economic, family situations? Well, uh, perhaps I could tell you a little bit about the research that I've been involved with. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, we looked at the small number of kids across the country, about 1,000 of them, we think, um, who, and, and that's 1,000 of about 400,000. So we're talking, we are talking about a small number mm. who are involved in more serious crime. And when I say more serious crime, uh, I mean things like burglary and uh, involved in kind of uh, drug sales. You know, um, and uh, of those kids, the, in the studies that we did, they tend to be kind of li- linked in with um, networks, either because of where they live or because of friendships or because uh, they get kind of stuck uh, by committing a minor crime uh, where there may be other kind of uh, uh, adults involved in it and they suddenly owe somebody an obligation uh, or they may be kind of uh, linked by family and kinship networks as well. So that, that's what we found. Small number uh, are involved in it, but they get involved in some very, very sticky situations. And for all the kind of questions that you asked at the start of the show, they're the ones that are particularly difficult with this group of kids. Okay, and they're the ones that uh, is continually uh, are continually posed to the likes of yourselves, the the authorities, Gardy, the whole lot. These these children, when that when let's talk about the thousand you're talking about, uh, and we've had a couple of incidents in, in the northeast here, pre, uh, prominent ones in recent times. Are all juvenile gangs? Is there an adult involvement? Yeah, so what we found was that um, if you think about it logically, um, things like burglary offences and drug sales, you know, um, kids don't source a large amount of drugs. They tend to get involved in the retail end of it. Um, so it, it, essentially, like any business, there's going to be a, a, a transaction link between um, children and often adults. Um, and it's actually the same with burglaries as well. You know, um, sometimes kids may need intelligence about where to burgle, a conveyance, and they certainly need uh, um, help in terms of fencing stuff as well. So what you tend to find with this small group of kids that we're talking about is that they are involved in atypical type crime. And what I mean by that, it's not, it's not normal stuff. The stuff that we spoke about before, like, you know, uh, young people getting involved in drunken behaviour. Um, this is, mo- is more serious. Uh, and what I would say in my experience from the studies we've done, 
you know, these are kids who they get stuck into situations that it's really, really difficult to get out of. And, you know, I know that people may say, well, you know, um, you know, uh, I, I live I live in a community and I don't get into trouble. These kids get st- stuck in these kind of relationships, particularly with adults, and they find it really difficult to extract themselves from it. When they're in, it's not easy to back on out because you're in and it proves difficult. Here's the thing. I looked at one aspect of a study you did and, and a summary of it. And, and you look at the, the gang thing and you say, right, controlled by adults. There are people involved in, in different age categories. And then you have the juveniles. You take three uh, strands to this and you talk about, first of all, taking out the the head, the leader, the boss or whatever you like. Uh, And then you talk about the foot soldiers and thirdly, the recruiters of children, which you put in the category, they're young enough themselves, 18 to 20 year olds. Yeah. Talk about those to me for a minute. The boss, taking out the boss. Will that be effective? Sure, yeah, well, so what, what I do is I look at the kind of international literature and there are kind of gang networks, crime networks. This is not something that, you know, we're stuck with. Um, they, people are really puzzled with this across the world. So, you know, there are different kind of um, strategies suggested. So one is, you know, um, spend all your resources taking out, you know, whoever seems to be uh, in, uh, at the top of, mm. uh, of a hierarchy. Now, that, that seems to work in, uh, you know, organised kind of uh, um, networks where there's some kind of... Um, you know, hierarchical structure that you can point to and where the person at the top, you know, has an immense amount of control. Um, Also then, you know, there are some kind of um, uh, criminologists who say, well, you know, there's more than one way to kind of kill a monster. You don't have to cut its head off. You can also cut its feet off. So what you should think about is um, targeting uh, the the young people who are involved in these uh, these, uh, crimes as well. We we looked at both of those and we didn't think it kind of fitted our situation, Jerry. Partly because we uh, the, the, the kind of the family and kinship element that runs through a lot of the kind of crime networks that we experience means that they have a, a real resilience. You know, they can kind of mm. stick together. But also uh, with a lot of the kids who get involved in things like um, drug sales or uh, burglaries, they're pretty expendable as well. And you can continually start targeting uh, young people uh, for uh, intervention and they'll be replaced by others. They don't have any particularly specific assets. What we looked at and our interest really is um, how these kind of networks keep themselves going over time. And, you know, with the ones I looked at, uh, there was one of them that had been around for 15 years, you know. So, you know, logic tells you that they must have some way of bringing uh, young people in at the bottom. And I, I think probably our most efficient way of being able to disrupt the networks of focusing on those kind of 19, 20, 21 year olds who initially provide the attraction for younger kids because they see them on the estate, you know, with, yeah. uh, um, they, they look like they're doing well, you know, they have uh, a high status. Um, uh, and then once the kids get involved in any type of crime, that kind of pull factor, that attraction then turns into something that makes them stuck. You know, so I, I think, uh, uh, from my experience, and I don't know about your situation there in in, yeah. in, in, in the northeast, um, but from my experience, my judgment would be that it's those who do the recruitment that we should focus our energies on. That's interesting. So those in the age bracket, late teens, early twenties, who are the recruiters for the younger ones, focusing on that area. I'm sure it's generic in the country here because there's an awful lot of similarities uh, with ourselves in the northeast and other places where this is a difficulty. Now, when you do, like, uh, enforce the law and, you know, you manage to uh, be it with the law or another way, extricate these youngsters from this, 
there's a vacuum. How how do you deal with the situation post that they're supported and that they won't drift back? Yeah, it's really, like you, you're asking me questions now that they're just not easy to answer, Jerry. I mean, like that. So if you've had a network around in a community for a long period of time, which was like the one that I looked at in Greentown, it's part of the story, it's part of the narrative, it's part of the history, part of the culture. So it doesn't go away very easily. So what? First of all, what you need is a, a long-term strategy. You know, you need to be thinking about this for how are we going to change the story around now over the next five to ten years. So I, I fully applaud um, the law enforcement kind of uh, activities of Angarshia Khanna. They have to do that, and yeah. I also um, think that the work they do in asset stripping uh, people for, uh, in terms of criminal assets is a really important thing as well. Do you know? But I think the thing that we're kind of missing here is that uh, with a lot of these crime networks, we need to be thinking about this um, for 5, 10, 15 years. And we also need to think about this as not being simply a law and order solution. Um, in the report, I don't know if you saw it, but in the in the report um, that, that I've finished and that I'm um, working on the next part of it now, you know, we've identified that network disruption or law enforcement is only one part of the solution here. The other parts really are about, you know, how do you kind of um, help communities who are in fear, you know, uh, to get back up off their knees and and start taking control over their own space again. And that's a really easy thing to say. It's a really difficult thing to do, you know, um, because, you know, our criminal justice system is based on people giving witness evidence or providing intelligence. And if people are really, really scared about doing that because of what they perceive might happen to them that's one thing that that's, a, that's one big barrier to to doing this is why it's a complicated problem the other thing then is that we assume that um these kids have um and their parents often have the, the ability to make right and wrong decisions i would say obviously you know you never want to take the responsibility away from kids but so, so i know of situations where you know um kids would rather go to prison than to um you know uh, take on the um you know what whatever might happen to them or the retribution from the network that they're involved with so using traditional law and order solutions just just won't work and then the final thing is that you know if you're going to stop kids from um you know, selling drugs or getting involved in serious burglaries, you have to try and provide something that's meaningful and which is pro-social. You know, um, yeah. a lot of these kids have fallen out of school um, and, you know, they may not kind of fit into kind of, you know, new wave uh, technologies either. So we need to think in those kind of four areas uh, about how we address it and we need to do it over the long term as well. Your work is so interesting and that's what attracted us to it. I, I did see the report and went through it and uh, I tried to pick a pick, pieces from it today that we could just concentrate on in the time that we have and uh, you're so right that that other aspect uh, the law enforcement is one you know what I mean dealing with that uh, but the community support the family support post uh, this is just crucial and it's the big piece I think that everybody is uh, trying to work on at this point in time and you which are which are next phase of work one last thing before we finish the juvenile justice system and you know you see repeat offenders all the time in front of judges numerous carrying convictions with them being released back in back out and they just serially offend is there anything can be done there should they be just put away for good or what well it's it's a real balance i think this is probably we're talking about the same thousand kids jerry to be honest you know um because we know that most uh, i think that the, the figures that i last looked at were that five percent of the juvenile offenders are responsible for 50 percent of crime and i think we're talking probably about the same group of kids mm. they they tend to be involved in 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 much more kind of um 
complicated and complex circumstances than the rest of them. So I'm, I'm by, by no means trying to be kind of bleeding heart on this. But, you know, my question is, like, you know, if as a, a society we want to try and bring kids through to adulthood with as few scrapes as possible, you know, putting them in prison isn't the answer, not for, for me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, I, I, you know, there are kind of, uh, there are uh, different things that we're trying out now. Um, there's a, a, a bail program now that's operating in, in, in Dublin, um, which is a very kind of highly intensive uh, program uh, to uh, help parents to be more effective at uh, uh, cont- having control over their kids as well. So I, we're not without hope there. I think that the, um, that the children and the young people who are involved in the kind of situations that you described, they just demand a different approach. You know? Sean, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk to us on Late Lunch this afternoon. I do appreciate it. Pleasure, Jerry. Take care of yourself. That's Professor Sean Redmond there, adjunct professor in youth justice at the University of Limerick. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I have a chat with him just when we... Uh reflected on a couple of incidents that happened here in the past while with young people in groups and uh, the implications of that for people who are victims of uh, as uh, Sean said there a moment ago crime that you you just can't dismiss because there's intimidation, attack on property robbery as well, it's absolutely wrong but it's a big question and one that uh, needs addressing urgently right across this region and beyond You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio We have a person we have a number, but we have one we're going to have a chat with in a minute. Whose house, whose bungalow was built because of the brilliant book we were talking about top of the show, Bungalow Bliss. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The Renault Selection used car event is now on. If you want to save thousands, check out this month's offers, including low APR finance, two years warranty and roadside assistance. Terms and conditions apply. Betty, how's the form? Not too bad at all, Jerry. <laughs> it's Betty O'Connor on the line with me. Now, you have a lovely story. You have the original Bungalow Bliss book. Yes, indeed. Um, John bought that and we got the plans done from, uh, you know, from um, the, the book. And um, John was determined to build his own house. Mm. And we actually built the house in the back garden of his parents' family home in uh, Mount St. Oliver in Drogheda. 
Right. And there was great tips in it for, you know, um, uh, how to do it right, if you like. Yes. And um, what year was that, Betty? That was in, it was started in 1974 and finished in 1975. Fantastic. And the house is still there? Oh, yes, indeed. Very much so. And you're living in it? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm in the living room at the moment. <laughs> you're in the living room of a bungalow bliss house. My <laughs> God almighty, isn't this just fantastic? And you love the place. Love it, yes. Absolutely love it. Love it. It was a lovely design of a house. Nice big windows in the living room and the sitting room. Mm. And the, we converted the attic because um, John did a high-pitched roof, so it could have been converted, you know, um, at a later date. And there was an extension to the kitchen, and that's pretty much it. I love it here. Absolutely love it here. It must have been wow, was it, in 74, 75? Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> I'm not saying it isn't today, but you know then, like, yeah. because it was new. And, and this book really has helped so, so many people. And the interesting thing with you, John built it. It was a direct labour built house, was it? That's right. Yes, indeed. John worked in WNC McDonald's at the time, and he was in, on shift work. And he did a lot of the work, um, you know, himself. Anything that could be done, he did it himself. My word. And I'm sure your story reflects an awful lot of similar stories across uh, the North East and beyond in in the country. When you hear many of the books, ten more than ten times it was was republished. So you were a real beneficiary of this great man's work, Jack Fitzsimons. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. And you'd highly recommend it. Even today, I mean, it has relevance to today. I know building and everything has moved on, but the designs in it, there are so many and there have been so many in the interim as well. You wouldn't swap your palace in Drogheda, no? No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Priceless. Yeah, isn't, absolutely. Isn't that just lovely? It's a lovely yeah. story. Thank you, Betty, for joining me today and just uh, following on from... Uh, uh, the the opening uh, story on late lunch this afternoon. It's and there are more. You know, I more. You're one, but there are more people here coming on to us all the time, uh, telling I'm us that they live in a bungalow bliss yeah, bungalow. Yeah. Well, yeah. listen. You've had many happy years there, and ha- many happy more to you, Betty, in, in the house and your family. Cheers. Thank Thanks, you for joining Jerry. me. Take care Take of yourself. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's Betty O'Connor there. She's. It's bliss, isn't it? When you live in a bungalow bliss house, you can hear it there. She's so happy. Uh, and there's more, Louise. And there are many people coming on to us here telling us, we've built one, we use the book as well. Great to hear, isn't it? There are loads. And yes. they're all different. different. There must have been so many different designs. Yeah. Tough and to pick if you're going yeah, through the book, I'm sure. Absolutely. And, and isn't it amazing to think, one man's legacy. And you knew Jack Fitzsimons, didn't you? I, I did. I just, when I started out in the weekend or in Nav and Jack used to come in with his planning to put the ads in the paper every week. You remember him? I remember him. He was a, he was a gentleman, pure gentleman, mm. lovely man. There you go. And all the people's lives he's touched and continues to touch today. Amazing, the power of one person. And uh, the new book is out. It's Bungalow Bliss Bias is the new one by his son, Kenneth, as well. It's a follow-up to the original. And if you were with us earlier, he made that commitment to his dad that he would do that. Now our fifth finalist into the hat in the Scotch Hall Shopping Centre holiday of a lifetime giveaway in association with LMFM is Teresa Fox from Carrick Macross. God, they travel far and wide to Scotch Hall for sure. Well done, Teresa. Uh, as well as being a finalist in the holiday draw, also wins a €100 Euro Scotch Hall gift card. So don't forget, anytime you spend €25 Euro or more in any of the 50 or more shops in Scotch Hall Shopping Centre, you could be in with a chance to win a holiday worth 
€5,000. You could be going to the Caribbean on a cruise for two, to Las Vegas on a wonderful trip, or heading with your children uh, to Lapland. You decide where you go when you win. So just pop your entry form in the draw drum in Scotch Hall and stay tuned to LMFM to see if you're the one uh, that's picked out next time round and you'll be a lucky finalist. The draw takes place on Saturday, May 18th. Well done and best of luck to Theresa Fox from Carrick Macross. Heading to our next break on late lunch and afterwards, I have a cracker of a guest for you. Yes, this week is Organ Donation Awareness Week and Sinead Faulkner has the most wonderful story to tell you. We'll be talking to her after half past two on the show. You do know by now that it is Organ Donor Awareness Week and on Monday, John McGovern joined us and told us the story of his receiving a kidney quite recently indeed and how it changed his life. Today, we're going to uh, change tax likely because we have a wonderful young woman with us who I met, I think, how long ago was it Sinead at this stage? Um, I think it was about seven years ago Indeed now. it is, <laughs> as long as that ago. Yes, Sinead Faulkner is with us and I want to welcome her back to Late Lunch. Thank Good you. to see you again. Thank you for joining us. And I want to say hello to everybody on Facebook Live. Join us on Facebook Live. Here we are in studio with this wonderful woman. Now, let's go back uh, and turn the clock back 14 or so years ago. You were 13 and up to the age of 13, no issues? No, never sick at all. <laughs> what happened at 13? Um, I just got very sick. Um, I was uh, down the town with one of my friends, came home and we were having a sleepover. And the next morning I woke up and I just kept going in and out of sleep. Um, so that kind of continued throughout the morning. Um, then that night just slept through the night. Sunday came again, just slept through all of Sunday uh, Monday came and my mum, I, I was doing first year exams at the time, they were coming up, so mum thought I was just trying to pull a sickie from school, <laughs> um, which I wasn't. Uh, and she brought me to the doctor and he thought it was my appendix, sent me straight to the Lords and it just went downhill from there. Um, they were just trying to diagnose what was going on. Um, I, I don't remember being in pain, but I obviously was in pain at the time when he was diagnosing me with uh, something wrong with my appendix. So yeah, just got to the Lords and then they were just trying to see what was going on and why I was feeling so unwell. So you're 13 and you don't expect as a 13 year old to be thrown into a situation like this. Do they get to the diagnosis quickly that there's an issue? Uh, yeah, they did quite quite fast. Um, I think I was in the Lords for maybe two weeks, uh, just being sent for scans and blood tests here and there and everything. And uh, then they transferred me up to Crumlin Hospital in Dublin. Um, and it was from there then that they discovered there was something wrong with the liver and that I had autoimmune hepatitis. Did you understand the seriousness of this as a young teenager? Not really. I don't think so at the time. Um, it was just, it was happening. You have to get on with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was just being kind of given loads of steroids, loads of drugs and that kind of stuff just to kind of balance out my blood tests and kind of get control of what was going on. And subsequent to that, for the next number of years, I take it you were monitored closely, you were on medication? Uh, Lots of medication and kind of up and down to the hospital every couple of months. Um, And then in between, a little bit sick in between, I had um, septicemia, pneumonia, just kind of thrown into the works every now and again. There was something coming up. Um, But yeah, it was relatively calm otherwise. Um, Were you able to continue with your schooling, your studies? Did you complete your exams, etc.? Yeah, missed out on the first year exams, didn't have to sit them. (laughs) (laughs) But after that, yeah, sat all my exams, uh, finished school and um, yeah, that was... Now you're out of school, you're coming to 19 years of age and suddenly there's a crisis, a real crisis. 
What happened? Um, so I had signed up to go to art college in Ophi um, to do my portfolio and I went up for the induction day and uh, on the way home it was lashing rain and I just felt unwell felt like it was coming down with the flu uh, my mum was away at the time and so I got home rang my sister she worked in Dublin at the time so she came home and I rang her and just asked her to drop me over some just um, some antibiotics not antibiotics but you know yeah. <laughs> lensips and stuff like that uh, so she came over dropped them in and she left and I'd say about 10 minutes after she left I rang her and I was like can you come back over I, could, I, f- I felt like I couldn't move out of the bed um, I just felt like I needed to get get sick so she came back over brought me up a bucket and that's where it just went downhill um, I was just projectile vomiting um, blood pure blood um, so my sister rang my auntie who is a first aider and uh, rang the doctor on call and he said I'm going to ring an ambulance so they rang an ambulance and my auntie came over and she said why don't you go into your mum's room there's an ensuite there so I went in everybody went downstairs to wait on the ambulance and um, I forgot to bring my sick book in and while I was lying in the bed I felt like I needed to get sick again so I stood up out of the bed and collapsed and smacked my head off the door frame and knocked myself out and that's kind of really I, I vaguely remember the um, paramedics coming in um, I couldn't I, f- I physically couldn't move or talk but I could hear everything that was going on um, and the last thing I remember is them lifting me up and yeah I v- had vague recollections of being in ICU in the hospital um, that night but I was in and out of consciousness um, apparently I was just there was just puking up blood the whole time So you are critical? Yes very critical yes and everybody is standing by and praying and hoping that yeah. you know this situation will turn but the bottom line is you need a new liver yeah so at the time um, so they stabilised me in the Lord's Hospital um, that night and my mum God love her got the phone call um, while she was on holidays that she needed to get home ASAP so she was on the next flight out um, the next morning flew into Belfast uh, hosp- or Belfast um, airport and she got a Garda escort straight to St Vincent Hospital where I was just after being transferred to they stabilised me enough to transfer me um, and they ended up putting a shunt in my liver to stop the bleeding um, and I was in a coma for about a week just over a week um, and then when I came out of the coma then it was there was talk then of going on to the transplant list How long did it take? Um, I went on the list the start of October um, 2010 and I waited uh, I had my transplant in March 2011 In the springtime of the yeah. following year but that was had to be a very difficult time. Um, it yeah, it was. Um, I I went on the list in October, got out of hospital, went back to work. Um, and the week of Christmas, I got sick again. When you uh, when you have liver disease and it's so far along, you get um fluid build up in your stomach, and the fluid build up in my stomach ended up getting an infection. So I ended up back in hospital with an infection in the fluid, which was quite serious as well. Um, so back to Dublin um, and I got out the day before Christmas Eve so I decided then not to go back to work Um, so didn't go back to work and then I just I couldn't sleep or anything but at the time I didn't think that it was on my mind that much but clearly it was Um, and then we had a false call in January um, where we had to go up and wait to see if it it was a liver for me Um, unfortunately it wasn't Um, so we were sent home and back on the waiting game again and then kind of yeah just I wasn't sleeping or anything and then finally got the call then in March and it happened and it happened yeah (laughs) 
And here you are today, all these years later, yes. full of life and fun and telling the story about it. But that liver that somebody else gave to you yes. saved your life. Definitely, 100%. I wouldn't be here today only for it. You go into surgery, you get the liver. What's it like post the operation? Was it slow coming back? Um, n- no, not too bad. Um, the, when I had been in hospital the previous September, um, when I was that sick, getting sick blood and stuff, they had, when I was in the coma, I obviously had a lot of drugs pumped through me and a lot of morphine. And the come down off morphine was not fun. Um, so when the transplant came around, I chose not to have um, morphine afterwards because it was so severe. It's not a nice thing. Um, so, yeah, the, the first day or two were, were the toughest. Um, they uh, they obviously put a catheter in, so you're not up going to the toilet and stuff, but I took mine out and decided I was going to be up and walking, uh, which the nurses didn't appreciate. I took it out in the middle of the night. Um, but I think that was actually a very good thing towards my recovery because it made me get up out of bed. It made me move about. Um, now, in fairness, I was actually like, bent over like fully walking to the bathroom because I was afraid that I'd rip my stitches and staples and everything um, but within uh, a week I had the first lot of my staples out and they had decided to let me home for two days um, uh, as a trial basis to see how I got on so I went home for the two days and then came back up and they just took out the rest of my staples and that was it see you later goodbye <laughs> they couldn't get, wait to get rid of me <laughs> But obviously then you were determined to get on your feet quickly and yeah. uh, embrace life and get going. Yeah. And that was it. You marched on from there. <laughs> yeah. Out I left and yeah, so a few little checkups here and there. But <laughs> Hey, Wonder Woman. Are we ever in studio with Wonder Woman? I did interview Wonder Woman, the real one, many years ago. But you know something? I'm looking at one this afternoon Thank on Late you. Lunch. Isn't she remarkable? Sinead Faulkner's with us on Late Lunch. We're going to talk more after the break. We've been with you on Facebook Live. We'll say goodbye to them on Facebook Hi. Live for the moment. But stay with us on LMFM Radio. More to come. Sinead Faulkner's telling us her story, a remarkable story on Late Lunch this afternoon. So you over the transplant and again, lots of care for you. And you'll always have the, take the drugs, yeah. anti-rejection drugs. They'll yeah. always be there. Well, yeah. Do you take anything else besides that? Uh, just a, a small dose of steroids. Okay. Yeah. Not a, a heavy burden to carry by any no. means. So you're out of hospital, you don't want to go back, you <laughs> march on and you wait. Do you go back? What happens then? I know you went to Australia. Well, first off, this lad, this man of yours, <laughs> Gary, who you're going to marry, congratulations you. next year as well. Where did you meet him? Or when did you um, meet him? Was it after the operation? Yeah, it was after the operation. It was a couple of years after. Um, so five years ago now, I met Gary and uh, yeah, just met him in Fails one night and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> did you say he's the one, you know, the, the song? Oh no, not a first name. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly is now. Yes, sure. he is, definitely. The two of you, though, headed off to Australia. How long were you in Australia for? Uh, we were in Australia just under two years. Um, and we'd done a bit of travelling around Asia on the way home then as well. So, yeah. Did you British. like it there? Yeah, I'd go back in a heartbeat. Would you? Yes. If <laughs> somebody wants to sponsor me, we'll go back no matter. <laughs> what about your farm work? I have to ask you about that. I believe it was a special, <laughs> special uh, memory for oh, you. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was grading onions and um, broccoli. Yeah, the onions were, were not so good. But we, we got through it. We done <laughs> Did it put you off them for life, no? Yeah, yeah. the smell of onions <laughs> I'll never forget. And the dust. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It was, it was great, though. We met some brilliant people and we worked on a great farm, a great family farm. Um, and they're all very good to us as well. Mm. 
them, yeah. Did you enjoy Asia? Because you, when you you went from Australia yeah. and travelled through oh, Asia as well, yeah. Absolutely loved it. We went to Vietnam, Cambodia and Thailand and yeah, it was just unreal. We spent just under three months travelling um, and then my sisters actually flew over to Thailand on our last leg of the journey and uh, yeah, needless to say, that was fun. <laughs> what an experience. Now, you are a makeup artist and you have your own business and I you've do. just moved premises lately, yes. haven't you? Yes, we've just make, moved to a bigger studio. On Peter Street in yeah. Drogheda. I was looking at what you do. <laughs> You're good. Thank you. You're really good. I do try. Do you know on your Facebook page that image of the lady with all the different colours on her? Yeah. Is that you? Yes, that's me. It's amazing. Seven hours of work. <laughs> well, you can see it. That is for sure. Who are your customers? Who comes to you? Um, we have a wide range of customers, uh, bridal, just people having birthdays um, and now recently more younger clients as well. So we do a lot of workshops um, for children and teens. So last year we had loads of Halloween workshops, just learning how to do like cuts, bruises, all that kind of thing. And now we're just actually having some teen boot camps now this weekend. Okay. Um, yeah. So and uh, is it for girls predominantly? Uh, it is, but boys are welcome as well. Like we had a quite a few boys actually on the Halloween workshops and they quite enjoyed it. So the lads <laughs> like to... Uh, oh yeah, they dabble in and every now and again well as well. and preen themselves yes. also, yeah. But it's going well for you and, and you are so well regarded. Mary Lawless has been on to us <laughs> just now to say, Jerry, I'll tell you, Sinead is the most amazing makeup artist. Thank you, Mary. And that's a lovely comment there. And uh, there's another one in from Marie. Oh, Jerry, well done to that young woman. Isn't she just uplifting and fabulous? Thank you indeed for that uh, comment, Marie, to us. I keep them coming to 086-1800-658 WhatsApp, text or across social media and if you want to pick up the phone it's 1850-715-958 Look, you are an example of somebody who's benefited from a transplant and somebody else gave you a new lease of life. What do you say today to our listeners to encourage people to carry this donor card? Don't ever just assume that people know your wishes Um just if you if you ever walk through um, a ward where there is patients waiting to be like given a transplant, you will see the heartache they go through, their family goes through. Um, just make sure that you know that your family know your wishes, um, that you carry a donor card. Just everything like just be a, just be very aware um, that people might not know your wishes. And that is the thing that people often take for granted. Yeah. You must make specific wishes, mustn't you? You can carry yeah. a donor card that enables you, especially the Kidney Association are brilliant with it, but if you have specific wishes for your organs yeah. to be harvested, you need to make that specific. Definitely, known, 100%, don't you? yeah. And you are but one example of so many people who have benefited from somebody. I said this to John, I said to anybody I've met over the years, do you think about that person oh, who yeah, definitely. gave you something precious? Definitely, 100%. Um, you, you, you'd wonder what they were like and how they lived their life and what they would be doing now as well and often think of their family and obviously what they went through and what they're still going through mm. um, but they made such an amazing choice as well like I'm sure not only I was a recipient of an organ I'm sure there was other people as well from this person um, and I'm sure it gives the family a little bit of heartwarming um, to know that there is other people living mm. off did it 
push you in the direction of going to Australia, seeing the world, setting up your own business, grasping life. Yeah, like I think I, I always wanted to go travelling, um, but it wasn't, there was, I wasn't even let go on holidays for the last year um, before I went on the transplant list because I was so bad. Um, I wasn't allowed to even go to Spain if I wanted to. I couldn't even go to Galway um, when I was on the transplant list because you need to be just there at back, back and call. Um, so when I had my transplant, obviously it opened a lot more doors for me and I could go and do these things like go travelling, open my own business and just live, basically. Mm. It's a great, great story and I'm delighted you came back to me today to, to retell it again to listeners because it's been quite a break since we met last and look at yes. all the water <laughs> that's gone under the bridge since then. May I wish you and Gary all the best Thank for you. your big day next year. Enjoy it and many, many happy years and a life together. Uh, and I just want to mention again, do make your wishes known and the simple ways to uh, become a donor, text donor to five zero. 050. That's donor to 50050. Or you can low call 1890-543-639 for more information. 1890-543-639. It's so important to do. Believe me. And Sinead Faulkner is a living example. Good luck with the business as Thank well. So Continued success to you. Hey, Jerry, we're at the end of the borrow days. I've always known I'm on borrowed time. What do you mean borrowed days? Well, seemingly, um, I was at home the other day and my mother, it was terrible weather on Tuesday and my mother said oh sure we're coming to the end of the borrow days um, it's traditionally bad weather so I kind of said I mm, wonder what that's all about so I looked it up and seemingly and you love the end bit of this Jerry. the first few days of April are called the borrow days and are traditionally associated with bad weather this derives from an old Gaelic legend where a mythical cow boasted about March being unable to kill her so March borrowed three days of terrible weather from April to try and finish the cow off. Okay. And that's the legend. And when um, Sigmund Freud, the famous <laughs> <laughs> psychoanalyst, heard it, he said about the Irish, this is one race of people for whom psychoanalysis is of no use whatsoever. <laughs> never work. So then April had to borrow those days back from March, no? No, I think it's just that's why, like, March needed bad weather to kill off this mad cow. Oh. So he borrowed, he said, you know, give me three days oh, of your I weather see. and I'm going to so turn it into really bad term. weather and yeah, kill okay. her. So that's why they're called the borrowed days. And that's why. Well, I, I, that's I th- my understanding, I th- unless anyone I, I, I can think I'm getting me wrong. I think I'm getting you. Anyway, we're in the borrowed days at the moment, folks. We're, we're at the end. <laughs> it's Hopefully to- <laughs> it's going to be nice weather from now on in. <laughs> on, on, a, on another note, do you know Blue Peter have a new dog? Another one. Did you ever watch Blue Peter? Oh, as a child. Yeah. Yeah, there's a new fella. He's called Henry. He's a rescue dog and he's a beagle and he's lovely. I saw him yesterday. He's gorgeous. I remember Petra and Shep. No, I, back I remember Goldie and Bonnie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, your, your, they're your ear. My ear was Petra and Shep. By God, that's not today or yesterday. Anyway, good luck Do to you. Do you know the new- why they had the pets in the first place, Jerry? They brought them on for children who couldn't, like obviously maybe in London or whatever in the in those days, couldn't get a pet. So they kind of brought the pets on so that those children could follow the story Way, of the pet. Hey, there you go. Of the dogs anyway. I've learned something today. Blue mm-hmm. Peter doing the bit to get children familiar with pets and having pets as well. Oh, Blue Peter always led the way for children anyway, I have to say. Yeah, I was reading there, there was one little cat that was sacked because she was too noisy. <laughs> 
Oh, the poor pussy. Sacked from Blue Peter. That's a, <laughs> that's a name you don't want to have. There's very few people sacked from Blue Peter, I have to say. Anyway, staying with younger people. Up next on Late Lunch, the exams are coming. Yes, just 62 days to go before they begin on the 5th of June. Have you someone for the leaving cert? Joe McCormick's with us next and he's going to tell us how your boy or girl can ace the exam. I think I can say at this stage he's a regular on late lunch because he's back with me today and he does know how to ace the leaving cert and help with the junior cert as well. Joe McCormick is with us on late lunch. Joe, good to see you again. Hey, Jerry, how are you? Very good. Thank you for joining me. Now, this man has a brilliant book called How to Ace the Leaving Cert and he's brought us a couple of copies and he's brought us his new junior certificate one for higher maths and the solutions. So if you're listening today, before we start chatting, have you someone for exams this year or perhaps next year as well if they're imminent and you'd like a copy of Joe's book for the Leaving Cert or the Junior Cert get in touch with us now just pop us in a text or a WhatsApp especially to 086-1800-658 if you'd like a copy of Joe's Leaving or Junior so you can text Leaving or Junior to that number with your name and details 086-1800-658 Joe, 62 days to go there's not a lot of time left 62 day countdown is it Jerry I didn't even know that myself actually so thanks for letting me know there but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's loads of time. It seems like a, sh- a short period, but this really, it's now, from now until the end is when you can really get the work done. And up to now, it's been preparation, really, uh, but uh, it's it's going to kick off now big time. What do you mean by get the work done? Because I take it that they're working away, studying hard right through the academic year. Why is these two months so important now? Um, well, at this stage, they need to have looked at um, doing some summaries of each each of the courses, you know. Um, I'm a big believer in summaries and having having the information in front of you. Um, and like the first thing I would tell a student would be to have a get a notebook for each subject. So a small notebook, A5 or an A6 notebook, a portable one they can carry around with them, and basically to put the key notes from each subject into that notebook. So that's the, f- the first piece of advice I would give. Um, the beauty of this is like it's it's easy to understand because it's written in the student's own own. Um, words and it's readable and I would say like the student doesn't want to be reading textbooks coming up near the exams they want to be reading off their own notes so keep it nice and simple and in relation to summaries I suppose the the format of summaries can take loads of different formats um, bullet points uh, A4 sheets post-its flashcards um, and then put them on the wall and keep reading over them you know record them into your phone whatever works for you do it you know so Definitely summaries are the way forward. You want to whittle down your notes from a large textbook, even to the notes that your teacher give you, down into something manageable. So it's it's basically goes back to Jerry, how do you eat an elephant, you know? <laughs> one one bite at a time. So I'm just looking at what you have here on the desk in front of you and I like that format that you have on an A four sheet there. You have a central sort of bubble and off that you have a number of strings with surrounding bubbles and little notes. I take it that that's the way you summarise things, yes. Yeah, but that that would be kind of like a mind map. What I've done now, just uh, just a few pointers for today, you know. So yeah, I've, I've a few but that'd be good to do for for subjects as well, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So that's that. If you put the main subtopic in the middle, and then each each topic um, coming out for the spider like diagram. Yes. So, um, like it's it's a it's a quick summary of the course, and um, of course, people with photographic memories and that can remember these kind of things uh, better. Isn't it well for them if you actually have that? 
you know, with with yep. two months, just over two months to go, how much you, you talk about? Right, let's. That's the first thing you recommend. Get a summary done. Get it in your own words. Get it into a little notebook for yourself, and keep going over that and do it with post pads or little notes on your wall, into your phone, whatever way you can. How much study should somebody be doing at this stage? Um, we see the thing is that's a question I always get myself. Um, to be honest with you, Jerry, homework is the best form of study. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to answer that question. It just depends on how much homework a student is getting. So they'd want to be like, putting in probably three hours every night, but that includes homework as well. This is a, a six-year student. Minimum, yes, going you know. for leave insert, let's talk yeah. about yeah. And what about at weekend, Saturday, Sunday? Well, I, I, I'm a big believer, again, in, in doing out a timetable, you know. Um, I've actually illustrated this in my book, and I'm calling it the Lifestyle Study Timetable. Um so the idea here would be that the the student would create a set of blocks, thirty minute blocks for um, for the weekend, and I can go through the format, which if you like now, just briefly. And um, so the student would, would basically set up um, the blocks. They put in all their leisure activities, all the stuff that they need to do at the weekends. Um, after that, then they order their subjects in basically one to seven, and the subjects they're worst at would be subjects, let's say, four to seven or the subjects they dislike, they go into the timetable first. So they take priority. Um, after that, then you put in the, the subjects um, that aren't as important. So basically, you're getting the most important things done. But I would always say after every half an hour, um, you should take five minute break. Or uh, if you're doing two hours, maybe an hour. So like I've, probably the word I've mentioned most in my book is breaks because it's the key to staying fresh and to actually being successful. So you must have a life outside study, even though this is coming to a crucial time and, and these final e- exams. What's your take on, on revision courses? Because they're coming up now at the Easter breaks. Do you like them? Um, I, I do like them, but it, it just depends on the content of them. Sometimes you can get, they can get too much content and it can just flood the student. Um, if, if it's something manageable and you can actually summarise into your own words, then they can be good. Um, every kid has their own weakness, so... Personally, I wouldn't send them for all subjects, but it might be an idea to send them maybe for a day or or two for one particular subject mm. or two. You know, um, at the end of the day, they have they have good notes from their teacher and. Um, my books are there available as well in math, yeah, yeah. Especially, and, especially in maths. So. And they are excellent. They really are excellent. Um, what else do you say? What are the key tips have you at this time? Yeah, so I suppose, Jerry, at this stage of the year, the importance of exam questions, I can't under, um, understate it. Um, so the reality is a lot of courses are quite long now. Maths is a classic example there, leaving cert higher level. Um, um, through no fault of the teacher, they haven't uh, had the time maybe to go through several exam questions with the, the student up to now. So... Um, I would say even for a fifth year, like starting off um, in the middle of fifth year, I would say that the students should start practicing exam questions. From past papers. Correct, yeah. So they can download the, the papers for free online or obviously they can buy the papers in fifth year too. Mm. But um, it's about building confidence. So with, with subjects that students are difficult or find difficult, a lot of it is fear, you know, and it's the fear of the unknown. Mm. So the, it's going into that exam hall and being worried about what what can come up in the paper or the timing or am I, am I going to get it wrong or how am I going to feel so it's just building your own confidence and it's really important I think that you should start off with the easier questions so a student that's revising at home for example um, they shouldn't do the past questions from start to finish they should start off with the parties so the parties you know it's an e- usually an easy starter a 10 marker um, start doing all the parties from the last four or five years 
right? When you get, get that done, then your confidence is, is up. You're feeling good about yourself. Then go to the part B's and then work your way down until you're eating the elephant totally, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Where do you stand on, on trying to call something coming up? This, uh, you know, this author hasn't been, this poet, poetry hasn't been there for a couple of years. Trying to, you know, work out the mind of the people who set the exams. Are you a fan of that or would you dismiss that entirely? Um, does there's always a bit, a bit of prediction. Students will always try and predict things anyway. And, of course, social media, which, you know, can be quite a negative coming up to exams, will be rife with what's coming up and what's not coming up. But um, I would say cover your bases, you know. Um, if you are going to take a risk on something, you need to have maybe a cover question or something else in mind that might come up mm. and just have an idea about it. But there's nothing wrong with a bit of prediction, but make sure you cover the course well and all teachers will advise that. Leave nothing to chance. Yeah. When you're in the middle of the exams and night on night you're going from one exam to the other, you may have two exams in a day, what do you suggest those evenings before an exam? Do you put in intense time or what? Um, probably a break is important in fresh air and a bit of exercise and, you know, um, this is where the parents come in, good good feeding and have the fridge stocked with good foods and cooking their favourite meal and all this kind of stuff. Um, but when you get the first day done, it's, you know, it kind of calms, calms things down and, um, you know, the kids get into a routine. Um, I would say maybe do two hours after your exam and then just relax for the rest of the night or mm. you know take a break when you get home obviously um, but there's a balance to be had you need it's uh, as we know it's a marathon but having said that like when we did our, our exams Jerry, there were one exam after the other there was no breaks mm. so there's a lot in the kids favour now like you know like for example it's home economics and English leaving cert first day so um there's a certain amount of percentage of students that would only have one exam on that day and then the following day is a balanced self out that might be okay. the other the other crowd might have only one yeah. exam so yeah. it's just you know there is a lot in their favour but I would say just relax and get get made two hours revision in as I said have your summaries so you want you, you want to be checking your post-its your flashcards um, all all your summaries your A4 sheets up on the wall that you have use them on the night those nights mm. that's the time when they really come into their own you know in your book of how to ace the leave insert it's so comprehensive uh, I know you mentioned maths and that there but you have uh, advice in here for the parents which is fantastic as well uh, you incorporate advice from other students experience over the years as well the hacks are in there food and exercise and breaks and all that type of thing so it's it, it's a comprehensive it's all encompassing all those things are important yeah, I mean, like, the, the nice thing about the book is you can just pick it up and drop it. You can just re- read different parts of it. Um, but, yeah, like the, the parents definitely have a role to play, you know. I mean, I think they, you know, they, they freak you, especially if it's their first kid doing the, mm. the leading cert or whatever. But it's important for them to remain calm anyway. There's a, so there's a chapter for parents in there that, that can help them, you know. Um so passing on your anxiety to your to your, your students is probably the worst oh, thing you could do. Yes. Okay, and you know it's very easy. don't do it. It's easy for me to say, like, but um, you know, try to main, maintain the routine in the household. It's such an obvious one. You know, like yeah. have the dinner around the same time. Make sure they to get up and at the, at the same time, um, and just make sure they have a nice warm study area. This kind of thing. Encourage them to get out for exercise. You know, brings them to the cinema at the weekend. Um, 
you know, uh, check of the obvious one is make sure that they're there for the exam on time. Well, that and is very <laughs> important. And there is a chapter in this book about exam day and preparing for that and making sure you have your checklist and get everything done. Because we hear it here and here, disasters, people mm. mixing up the exam date, the one they're going in on yeah. as well, and the times, etc. Crucial. Put it up in the fridge, I think, Jerry, is, and you can't go too far wrong and highlight the ones, the exams a student has to do, I think. Mm. So the parent, that's the parent's job there, you know, and just support and encourage them after that. Absolutely. Yeah. Where's this book available? Oh, your, your book's Junior and Leaving Cert. Where? Um, so locally it's in Macaloon Centre and Navin, but um, I'm expanding to a number of bookshops around Ireland at the moment. And um, But you can obviously buy it online. So it's www.acesolutionbooks.com. That's the important one. acesolutionbooks.com. It's still in vogue you need it the next 60 days it's invaluable and beyond that of course keep them coming to us if you have someone for leaving or junior cert let us know 086-1800-658 and we'll uh, pick people uh, for the books that Joe's brought to us today and we'll tell you about that tomorrow Joe McCormick thank you so much for dropping into us on Late Lunch today thanks Jerry. thanks a million and we leave you in the company of Creedence Clearwater Revival And if you get this book and they follow it, there'll be a lot of proud Marys out there come exam time. See you tomorrow. Lunch with Blackstone Motors. The Renault Selection used car event is now on. If you want to save thousands, check out this month's offers, including low APR finance, two years warranty, and roadside assistance. Terms and conditions apply. LMFM Podcasts. Brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Getting hitched? Cartmacross Credit Union likes to say I do when financing your wedding loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.